Welcome to Headlines of the Future, brought to you by Bayer. Fascinating clues to help solve some of the most pressing global challenges, from climate change to feeding a growing population to curing diseases, can be found through science and innovation. I'm Kate Hayes, and I'm your host of the podcast, Headlines of the Future, brought to you by Bear. In this podcast, we get to hear from visionary scientists, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs who are exploring how the science of today may positively impact our lives in the future. In this episode, we're going to discuss a topic that is always important, but is especially so right now, the state of global food security. As the war rages on in the Ukraine, The devastating impact on its citizens and cities have been heartbreaking for the world to watch. At the time of this recording, tens of thousands of Ukrainian civilians are still trapped with little food or running water, while millions more are facing serious food insecurity. And to make matters much worse, the ripple effects of this war extend far beyond Ukraine's borders to every part of the world and could push hundreds of millions of the world's most vulnerable people towards starvation. As the executive director of the UN World Food Program recently stated, we are on a countdown to catastrophe. My two guests today are going to help us understand what's going on, how this affects the global food supply chain, and what role science and innovation could possibly play in helping food systems to recover. I'd like to give a very warm welcome to Julie Borlaug and Natasha Santos. Julie Borlaug is the Associate Director of External Relations at the Borlaug Institute for International Agriculture. The Borlaug Foundation continues the legacy of the late Dr. Norman Borlaug, who was Julie's grandfather, in the fight against global hunger and extreme poverty through international agricultural development. Dr. Norman Borlaug won the 1970 Nobel Peace Prize for his work preventing mass hunger and starvation in Mexico, India, and Pakistan. In fact, he is credited with saving a billion lives. And if you've never read his three-volume biography, which was my personal introduction to agriculture, I would highly recommend it. Julie, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, and I want to thank Bayer for this opportunity, and I love talking with anyone who is passionate about agriculture and especially situations that are going on globally right now. But I'm Julie Borlaug. I am the uh, VP of External Relations at Envio, and I'm also president of the Borlaug Foundation, and it's great to be here. My love is agriculture, international development, hunger and famine are some of the things that I love talking about, as well as youth and the next generation solving these issues. Wonderful. Well, I'm so glad that you're here. Natasha Santos is vice president and head of global stakeholder strategy and affairs at Bears Crop Science Division. Natasha has more than 17 years of experience in food and agriculture, sustainability, and life science industries. She's led various industry association groups and sectorial alliances and has positively contributed to policymaking and collaboration. Natasha, thank you for being here as well. Thank you so much, Kate. And what a pleasure to have this conversation today with Julie and you, particularly on the times that we are living. Um, I decided to work on agriculture because of the many farmers like my father uh, that I that I had in my life and work on global advocacy and partnership because of the inspiring life that my mom has shared with me as an example. So more than happy to exchange on how we can do more scale things and think about partnerships and innovative ideas to to help the ones that need most, particularly in the times that we are living in. So thank you. Absolutely. So Julia and Natasha, 
Before we dive in further to what's happening in the world right now, I did want to give our, our listeners a chance to hear from both of you a little bit more about your backgrounds, your your connection to food and food security. And you both kind of started talking about this already, but let's take a little bit more time to just get to know you. So Julie, to start with you, obviously you were born into a family with a strong food security legacy, but did you always know that you wanted to work in this area as well? Well, I like to say I come to agriculture genetically, but, um, you know, I had started out working in nonprofits like the American Cancer Society and the Salvation Army and doing development and fundraising for them and all wonderful causes. But I knew I always wanted to do something about famine and agriculture because of my grandfather and what greater cause that affects so many innocent lives at such early ages is other than, I mean, hunger. It was just compelling to me seeing my grandfather, hearing his stories. So that's how I really came to agriculture. And I had the opportunity to go back to my undergrad alma mater, Texas A&M, and they were forming the Norman Borlaug Institute for Texas, Norman Borlaug Institute for International Agriculture. And I got to come in as a external relations and development director for the um, Institute and worked with my grandfather. So that's really how I started my career in agriculture. And, and the great thing was I got to travel with him. I got to see him work with students and not all, there's five grandchildren and not all had the opportunity to do that. So that's something I really treasure. Uh, I bet. So what do you currently do in your work in the context of trying to support food security around the world? So currently I'm with Envio and we're working on plant health. So let's talk about citrus greening. Citrus greening would be the COVID of citrus trees. And we're losing pretty much about 100%, almost 100% of all trees in uh, Florida have citrus greening. We have not found a solution to this. It causes the leaves to turn yellow. It causes fruit drop. It ruins the entire grove. Once a tree has it, you can either try to spray tons of pesticide to see if it'll go away. Typically it will not. And then you have to burn the tree. So we're about to lose our citrus industry here in the United States. And that's what we're working on. In my past life, I was working in gene editing, which is exciting because it can be a new way that we develop drought tolerant wheat that needs less fungicides and less other inputs that provides a greater um, stability and better quality seeds for those in developing countries. So that was what I've been doing the last five, six years. Okay. And I'm glad that you mentioned gene editing as we're going to really start to talk a little bit more about the innovation that is behind the agricultural industry in just a few minutes. But Natasha, first, let's get to know you a bit better. What's, tell us a little bit more about your background and how you ended up in crop science at Bayer. Thank you, Kate. And I was talking about that actually this week as I'm, I'm having conversations with some of our stakeholders. I'm a political scientist and um, I've done political science and international relations uh, late 90s, early, early 2000s. And I remember this was a few years, well, a decade after the Berlin Wall was, you know, done and, and gone when, you know, after hyperinflation and horrible economic times in my home country in Brazil, I, I come from Brazil, that my family, particularly my mother, had to reinvent herself five, six, ten times and, and build things from scratch over and over again because of bad government and bad policy. 
And honestly, I never thought that uh, in 2022, we would see a um, country invading another country in Eastern Europe. It's just unimaginable and it's, it's hard to believe that we are living in. But we are, so we need to do everything we can to change that. So I wanted to share that because it's part of why I got into agriculture. I've seen what agriculture can do for rural communities. I've seen what agriculture can bring in terms of prosperity in my countries and, and challenges that we continue to try to overcome. So that is what inspired me. Um, what inspired me is to help others uh, give voice to the voiceless, help others to advocate for what matters to them all over the world. And I feel that the private sector and a company like Bayer with our commercial footprint can really be a powerful partner in the economic development that those individuals need for better livelihoods. I've seen how private sector helped my own family. So um, more engaged than ever, um, my whole family, my grandma, my grandfather, all moved from Europe to Brazil because of the war. <laughs> So uh, it's more than ever very personal, I think, for millions and millions of us, but it's very personal and so happy to have the chance to be talking to you and Judy today about that and what else we can do and what we are doing, how we can connect other organizations should do much more. So that's me. Thank you, Natasha. And yeah, so let's dive into the topic of what's happening right now and what, what needs to be done. So Julie, I saw that you tweeted a few weeks ago that the independence of Ukraine matters to food security, to human rights, and much more. So can you help us understand how and why the war in Ukraine is affecting the food supply around the world? Well, I, I want to comment on something that Natasha said, that she never thought you'd see another war in Eastern Europe. And one thing my grandfather always taught me is history repeats itself. So we have to unfortunately remember things can always come back. And um, the problem with the Ukraine is people who wanted to be independent, live their own lives. We had farmers who were doing amazing. And, and of course, I love wheat. So I'm going to talk about wheat. Farmers who were successful farmers have now had to flee or their farms have been taken over and they export between Russia and Ukraine. Is, is it, I believe, 30% of wheat and other grains come out of that. That is 30% of the entire global supply that will not be in the system anymore. What that does to everyone else, yes, let's say we in the United States are self-sufficient, but we're going to have to ramp up more to export. And when we talk about shipping right now, and distribution, we have COVID issues still that are delaying shipping. So there's a lot of chaos and things beyond just agriculture research, beyond the goodwill of the people that are holding necessary aid to get to Northern Africa and other regions of the world. So it's going to take a lot of negotiations and support and trade and how we're going to get um, the wheat and other grains to where it needs to go, as well as remembering that we need to feed the Ukrainians who have no food. So it's a really complex matter that just goes beyond research. And I know a lot of people look at it and say, well, we have enough wheat. Why can't we get it there? Well, distribution, um, getting it places to don't have roads. There's a lot of complexities, as I said. And with 30% of the wheat supply now no longer in the market, it's devastating for all. Absolutely. So we have two countries who are responsible for feeding a, a large part of the world. And now that grain is not coming out of those countries. 
And I understand that Russia is also a major supplier of the world's fertilizer. So, Natasha, I'm wondering what else can you tell us about the current state of food security, of what's going on, who's most at risk here, and what's at stake? Thank you, Kate. And I think um, Judy started us off um, with very important data and concerns, particularly on, on wheat being the Black Sea provider of wheat um, and so important for places like North Africa, Middle East and other places around the world. And honestly, I think what this situation, this war brought to us was just more and different additional risks to all the regional and global food system, right? So is that uh, triple cis is the COVID, is the conflict, and is the climate that we have been trying to, to find solutions and working with farmers towards um, climate mitigation and, and resilience. So I think as we look at the global food systems that honestly have provided us with more safe, nutritional, affordable food per capita than ever before, but those um, additional risks um, really create the concerns and the disruptions. And, and as Julie mentioned, particularly for the ones that are more vulnerable without forgetting the situation of the Ukrainians, of the war, right? So you mentioned about Russia, I think particularly on the, the fertilizer pieces, and then it goes on, on all the inputs on food systems. So availability of inputs, prices of inputs, the pressure in terms of costs when you look at energy to produce those inputs. It's about availability. It's about cost of production. That energy, which as well, Russia is a big exporter because of the gas, with more pressure in the food systems as we, we see and more pressure in terms of overall food prices around the world. So I think there's a big concern on obviously fertilizers, of course, nitrogen. There's a big concern on potassium. Um, I've seen public information, for example, from Brazil with concerns of availability of potassium. A country like a, a middle-income country like Brazil with um, availability of fertilizer until August, for example, and looking for new new resources or new places to be able to, to, to have um, fertilizer at all. And then without fertilizer and, and seeds, right? It will be impossible if we look at the next season for us to really um, make sure that the resilience and food production in countries like Ukraine, and then um, thinking about farmers, uh, buyer, we a buyer have done um, this year everything that we could to make sure that inputs were provided to farmers. And we have brave farmers in more complex places in Ukraine planting today. Um, but as well, looking at the future and, and the next seasons, uh, looking at next year. So how can we make sure that those inputs are there for Ukraine, but as well, they are able to export and they're able to um, sell their produce as well. Um, and then Julie mentioned in terms of logistics and supply chain. And then what is the ripple effect when we look at the midterm, right? The immediate impact, for example, on supply of places on, on the Middle East, like Yemen, like the World Food Program executive director has um, said over and over again that their costs are going to increase and that they are already suffering so much to provide food on places where acute hunger and famine is so, so complicated, like Yemen. But then what other countries were highly uh, dependent on that imports, particularly wheat, how can we help those countries um, now, but how can we help those countries in the midterm in terms of helping them not only to find alternative sources, but helping them to produce more, produce sustainable, of course, but produce more. And how are we going to close that yield gap? 
uh, that still exist, particularly in places like Africa, in, in the African continent and, and regions like Africa that still don't have access to, to technology or an environment, for example, that would allow a, a proper seed system to be able to develop local seed companies, for example, and to be able to develop technology that will help them to produce more uh, with less, but being able to produce for their population as well. So I raised a lot of topics that we can we can discuss uh, on this exchange, Judy, but I think we need to look at the whole complex and the wave of impacts that this war brings on top of COVID and on top of climate change that we have been uh, going through the past years. And I, I really liked some of the topics you brought up because I think it gets to what we need or what people need to hear and have a discussion about. And I think uh, when you look at what COVID did and how countries had to shut down trade in between each other, now we have a crisis where we can't get anything exported from continent to continent. And when you look at self-reliance, that is what is so important about agriculture research. And I have been a part of public-private sector partnerships, either through Texas A&M University and Bayer or USAID and, and the Gates Foundation. And it's so important that we provide the know-how, or and, and it's truly extension, so that we teach those in local areas, so whether it's Northern Africa, to be self-reliant. And it's innovation and technology, but along with that, as you said, it's the distribution of inputs and fertilizer and um, fair prices and all of that. So I think through COVID, we all can relate how being self reliant within a country, whether that's manufacturing and most importantly, agriculture is one of the key cornerstones. And I know that all of us are working hard in international development to get countries to be self-reliant because when you're self-reliant, you have a more stable and peaceful population, healthier, of course, is most important, and you get to become part of the world economic system. So that helps with poverty as well. Julie, it's really fascinating to be talking to you and hearing you say these things, because as I listen to you talk, I hear, you know, I, I think of your grandfather's voice as I read it, you know, through the history books talking about, you know, the need to do the same thing for, you know, countries in the 1960s, you know, as the world was facing this um, impending famine that was expected to kill hundreds of millions of people due to the growing population and the food production capabilities of that time. And most people believe there was no way to avoid this. But, you know, thanks to Norman Borlaug, the agricultural scientist, he applied his knowledge and, you know, worked for years to figure out how to make crops better. And then he was able to dramatically increase crop yields and also teach the local farmers and the local agricultural industries how to do this better. And, and it was about using technology better, using the innovation better. I know that that all became known as the Green Revolution. And, you know, people may have heard that term, but don't really understand where that name comes from. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what you know about how your grandfather was able to help people help themselves and, and where that whole Green Revolution term came from. Well, the Green Revolution was actually coined by the USAID director, 
in the 60s and then into the 70s. My grandfather was sent down to Mexico um, by the Rockefeller Foundation and the Mexican government, but the U.S. government was concerned about the plight of agriculture. So he went down to develop a new wheat variety that would be what it ultimately became was um, it was a shorter stature, sort of dwarf wheat, uh, could be um, done in drier climates. It was disease resistant and it produced a higher yield. But most importantly, it wasn't as sensitive, photosynthesis sensitive. So light was not as big and that was called shuttle breeding. And what that meant is it could be taken to different parts. So it could be in the highlands one season and the lowlands in Mexico and another, but that's what made it so transferable to other countries. Um, India had seen this, Pakistan had seen this. They asked my grandfather to come over and see if it could work. He brought then scientists and young farmers down to Mexico to train them. And the important reason why he trained them in Mexico was he wanted them to be taken away from their cultural norms when it came to farming, from the systems they had used, and especially from elders in their community who weren't necessarily open to new ways of farming and new systems. So he taught them in Mexico. He sent them back with seeds and they grew their own plots and test gardens. And with that came the Green Revolution and India and Pakistan were able to become grain self-sufficient within three years of each other. Had that not happened, people like Paul Ehrlich and many others were saying there was going to be millions who'd starve between the two countries and a potential war could break out and cause disruption globally. And that is how he got the Nobel Peace Prize. It was through the window of peace of what he was able to develop. But I think the import most important part of what my grandfather did that had been different was he realized there had to be three stools to the solution. And that was, of course, the research, innovation, and agriculture. That was... Um, being politically involved. You had to talk to the politicians. You had to get a change in the economics. You had to provide fair prices to the seed, access to credit, and make sure that the government was getting involved in infrastructure. India and Pakistan built roads. They helped with irrigation. They really rose to the challenge. And the other um, part of it was supporting the farmers. So that's kind of why he was a little different than most researchers at the time. He understood that you have to have the governments behind you and the government support, as well as training of the farmers and the research to truly transfer a successful change. So Natasha, as I know you work in policymaking, does that still ring true today? Definitely. I was so inspired by the answer and, 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 and sharing the the story of, of Julie's grandfather, because um, we need more than ever a policy environment that supports all those items that Julie just mentioned, particularly in terms of innovation, particularly in terms of helping farmers, farming community, but populations to, to thrive economically. And honestly, what I have learned on, on the past years and brainstorming with my team again, the, the an amazing team of experts in partnerships. And from our partnerships and investment on the ground, I think one very important piece that this beautiful example of Julius' grandfather inspired us is that he was trying to solve real problems in real world, in real life, which sometimes 
policymakers or some some stakeholders in the international development community um, sometimes maybe far from the ground forget. And, and I think it's really, really important to think when, when we are trying to design more solutions or scale solutions or design new ideas, we really need to focus on, let's say, the complexities and multifactorial aspects of, of the solutions that we, we want to bring in. In my opinion, there's three areas, and Julie mentioned three areas that are so, so important when we think about resilience and, and food security. Infrastructure. Sometimes we, we forget about basics of infrastructure. I didn't know. It was a team member of mine that recently shared with me, did you guys know that, for example, in Sub-Sahara region, they have one of the lowest uh, road density in the world. And then I wonder why don't we, you know, uh, develop many international organizations actually help governments to, to invest on basic things, right? Like roads uh, for basic logistics or in infrastructure as well, uh, investment on ICT, right? There's a, such an inspiring initiative called SEACOM in many African countries, um, including Kenya, but many, many uh, different African countries that it's about investment to lay hundreds of thousands of kilometers of underwater cables for faster internet access. This is a powerful example of transformative investment because it's internet access that enable so much more, right? In terms of, and, and for agriculture, if you think about digital agriculture, which can create marketplaces, which can help to accelerate innovation, research and innovation, um, help uh, for farmers to predict better for them to manage their farms better, big and small here, or things like going on innovation, things like innovative startups nowadays, startups that are locally developed and they're seeking to solve a problem, a real problem, a real problem. So that bottom-up approach and demand-led process, I think that that's the way that we need to think about solutions and investments uh, from a public and private point of view. So, of course, policymakers can help and they should help, as I mentioned, creating that policy environment that supports innovation, for example. But I think one point and was an individual drive, right? And a researcher drive that could see and, and, and inspire others to go with him. We should not forget the foundational of rights, let's say, that unleash that human ingenuity, right? through those fair systems, to those open, competitive systems that can guide, can induce those actions, and then long-run growth and, and wealth creation for the majority. So I think we, we should never forget that we are here to solve real problems in, in the real world. And then we need to understand what the pro those problems are, because solutions in India might be completely different than in Ethiopia, for example. Um, but there's basic areas that we can collective um, invest as public and private companies. I think, Natasha, when you talked about roads, it's so important. I've spent a lot of time in sub-Saharan Africa and a lot in east eastern part of Africa, and there are no roads. Once you get off the main cities, there aren't roads to get into the villages. So when we're trying to get farmers crops to the markets, a lot of it is lost because they can't get it there on time. And when we try to get things into them, whether it's through World Food Program or others, there's no roads to get it in. So it's a slower process. And I'm always asked, if there's a few things you could do for Africa, what would you do? One of my first things is roads. And when people question me about it, I remind them, and this is a U.S. Um, example, but why do we have farm to market roads? 
in the U.S.? Well, that was during World War I and World War II, when we built roads from the farm to the market to get out supplies to feed our military and other allies. So that is why infrastructure and roads is so important, and it cannot be overlooked, and it often is overlooked. Um, there's no reason why 4% of Africa is only irrigated in this day and age, and that the road system is as bad as it is. So I loved your suggestion that you know, other NGOs or people come together and just support infrastructure, whether it's roads, whether it's irrigation, whether it's cold chain storage or dry storage, all of those areas are needed beyond the innovative research that we're all doing. So I'm hearing you both say there's a need for a lot of infrastructure improvements in countries that are currently struggling with providing enough food um, internally, uh, I mean, not relying so much on exports, but in this current situation, obviously there's still going to be the shortage. And I wonder, you know, beyond the long-term outlook, what can a company like Bayer do, Natasha, to help right now lessen the impact of what's happening in this war? I think what our organization is doing, when you think about short-term, I think our complete focus should be the humanitarian situation in Ukraine particularly, right? So supporting organizations like the World Food Program with logistics, with refugees relief, or supporting organizations like uh, Red Cross with the, the refugees crisis situation, which our organizations are doing, and we are actively engaging with other organizations to do the same. Of course, if with operations in, in Ukraine, our first priority is safety uh, and support of, of our own employees, particularly in Poland, but other European countries providing shelter and support. So it's a humanitarian catastrophe that in the short term needs to be looked at as it is a humanitarian uh, catastrophe and all efforts to, to look at that. And then um, even when you think about immediate impacts on, on other countries, I mentioned um, the, the, the this horrible situation in Yemen that has been happening for so long and then I'll reinforce World Food Program again, but other initiatives to provide food, uh, particularly for those that are countries that are highly dependent. So I think in the short term, that's the area that we want other organizations and governments to, to support as well. And then, but the challenge with, with world hunger and, you know, the SDG2, it's something that you mentioned on, on the beginning, Kate, it's something that, um, of many world leaders have been talking about for a long time and that COVID, even before the war, now exacerbated, but COVID uh, really turned us backwards on our 2030, our um, goals of the uh, decade. So we have been, as an organization as well, we have been listening to that. And that is one of the reasons that um, one of our sustainability commitments is about uh, smallholder farmers, right? It's reaching 100 million farmers with innovation, but as well creating partnership and collaborations like um, the Better Life Farming, uh, for example, those centers around um, less mile approach that are something that we invested um, heavily in Asia and, and now more recently in Latin America. Or, for example, um, partnerships like Bay Gap with the value chain companies because we are thinking about food system, right? So with upstream companies as well, to think about how to, to actually to provide trainings and provide support for farmers 
to access markets, to be able to to get into value chain certifications, to be able to lower their costs, um, to to be able to um, uh, get into those value chain certifications, and then as well be more competitive to um, reach local and international markets. Um, we have so many partnerships on the ground as well in Africa, for example. We also funding progress in, in places like um, our project with the Mercy Corps in Africa, the ADF2 program, which is actually our buyer foundation that is doing that it was already tested during the locus crisis, for example, in Africa, but it's a digital um, services to scale digital services and, and products to boost productivity of 2.4 million uh, smallholder farmers in East Africa, which 38% of those farmers are women. And we know the ripple positive effects when we are supporting women. But what I have been engaging with stakeholders, particularly in the value chain is Let's make sure we our collective actions are in the places where we can really scale things that are already on the ground, uh, things that are being successful that will help us to accelerate and will help us with solutions in the short term instead of maybe thinking about completely new ideas that maybe will not um, solve the problem. So we have so much interesting and good projects on the ground, not only from our organization, but others. So. Can we look at those um, and then can we think about which are the countries that are going to be more impacted and then scale things on those places? Um, it, it is a challenge that we are living, but as well an opportunity to accelerate partnerships, right? And I'll, I'll stop here. But uh, for example, and we, we talk about it a little bit and going back to the seed sector, seed systems in Africa, how can we help to, this is so, so important. How can we, with the Gates Foundation, with other organizations, with CGIR, how can we help better breeding? How can we help to develop local companies or local organizations that will develop their own hybrids? This is so, so important. Seeds are so, so important for productivity and, and, and thinking about hybrids, drought-tolerant hybrids, for example, so, so important for climate change. So um, how can we scale those type of things that will have a long-term sustainable impacts on livelihoods and sustainability as well. I think we should look and join forces on where um, resources and foundations are. And then places where they are not, we need to partner with governments and we need to think about other organizations that do have a footprint and expertise to solve the, the, the real problems that exist on the ground. Um, I want to segue into what you were talking about, expertise and entrepreneurial spirit. Um, Bayer has been fabulous supporter of Next Generation. I call the young students and, and people interested in agriculture, whether it's science or policy or other things, um, the next generation of hunger fighters. My grandfather called his his hunger fighters as well. They need a seat at the table. We need to believe in them. They don't look at this problem of climate change and sustainability or even the Ukraine crisis and think the world's just, you know, going to hell. They think there's so many things we can do. We've all just got to come together. But it's up to us in the older generations to make sure we give them a seat at the table. They have a voice and we actually implement their ideas. They want a million dollars for their research. So all of us can play a part in really challenging and supporting and bringing them to the table. And that's one of the biggest things that I'd like to come across today is let's really lean in on the next generation. Julie, I love 
Thank you for bringing that. And we are very committed, particularly evolving to a more partnership approach on, on the next generation um, work that we do. Um, and I love that. And then I hear you both saying we need more partnerships to invest in better infrastructure. And then, of course, obviously the technology. And as as a company, that's what Bear does is produce the better seeds and, and the digital tools that farmers need. I don't think I even realized that a seed was an innovation until I started working for Bear. And then I realized, yes, they don't just exist. It takes plant breeding. That's when I learned about Norman Borlaug. Like it takes science to make seeds better so they can grow in these environments. Um, and all of these things are happening long-term, but I just, I know we need to get back to a place where we can kind of look ahead to the future. And, and Natasha, I wonder, especially in light of the current fertilizer shortage that's happening, like any other innovations that you can quickly kind of talk about to to talk about how we're thinking about the future and how we change the way we do things now and make them better. Yes. Um, Kate, for example, we have the great focus and the great R&D machine that our organization is, but as well, we have the opportunity to look much ahead um, with the investments of our LEAPS program, right? That is looking at a few areas such as um, solutions and investments that can uh, bring solutions for food loss and waste, Think about plant breeding innovation as well, and then think about um, other investments or alternatives for um, fertilizers, particularly alternative um, sources. And we have recently invested on a company called Joy Bio, which um, is an opportunity to think about, um, the, particularly as, as you mentioned, particularly now with all this pressure, what are the alternative sources and how we can think um, in an innovative way um, of alternative sources for fertilizers. So this was an investment by our LEAPS group. And I think that's where probably you want you to go, Kate, on the opportunities to think beyond and think about um, innovations that maybe are not on our core um, portfolio now, but are innovations that will bring solutions to farmers for them to, to farm more um more sustainably and, and more productive, um, far uh, more with less as, as it is part of our principles in R&D as well. Julie, any other thoughts on this topic? The things that I know you talked about gene editing earlier, and I know that's another big part of, of innovating seeds for the future. Anything else you'd like to add about innovations? I, I do want to say how much I love gene editing. I think the potential is enormous and we're working within the plant so we're not bringing foreign DNA into the plant and it's all holistically within whether we're working in trees, whether we're working in wheat or corn, hopefully one day we'll work in trees, but it has great potential and we have to allow the potential to reach those who are most in need. Um, the other thing I would just say is innovation research is only as good as when it gets out to the farmers. So if you look at what happened with um, golden rice, that took years, all because of political fighting and a lot of NGOs that didn't even understand what the purpose of it was. Um, we now have salt tolerant rice. I saw that the other day and read an article on it. That is an amazing accomplishment because that Hand, that help with sustainability, climate change, and provides access to rice for so many more people. So we've got to keep pushing the envelope on innovation. 
And when I talk about innovation, and I know when you all are talking about innovation, we know that gene editing isn't going to be the answer for every developing area locally. You know, innovation such as appropriate tools for female farmers to use that aren't the size of what a male uses, or instead of a tractor, a tractor that can be assembled and is easier to use and you could push, something like that. That is all innovation and that's all technology transfer along with when you think about gene editing. So we go from high to low, but that technology has to make it off the shelf and be transferred to the farmers. And the one thing I would like to add is that for all those who are listening, who are involved in agriculture, share your stories, share your personalized stories about agriculture with those who aren't familiar. And then they'll start to understand the plight of agriculture and why innovation is needed and why companies like Bayer are doing good. So please talk to anyone and everyone. I always say if you're sitting on an airplane next to me and you ask what I do, you're in for a long flight. So please take it. So my grandfather's last words were taken to the farmer. I also add, take it to the public. Absolutely. And just to make sure that anyone listening understands what you're saying about getting that innovation to the farmer, getting it off the shelf, that's where the policymaking comes in, right? Because um, if if the public is afraid of technology and, and they're protesting against it and then, you know, policymakers say no, then it never gets to help anyone. Um, so it's about being educated, educating people who aren't involved in agriculture to help them understand why the innovation is so important. So if we wanted to improve the current situation being caused by countries being dependent on other countries for not only their seeds, but also, you know, fertilizers and the tools that they need to grow healthy crops, what kinds of changes can we work on as an ag R&D company to make those tools easier for them to use and more successful in the areas where they live? What we need to do, Kate, is really design innovations that solve real problems and have always, always the farmer in the center of our thinking and in the center of the solutions that we are trying to design. Um, Because one piece, we discussed it a lot about infrastructure, about access. One piece, of course, it is access to innovation. And for farmers to have access to innovation, first, they need policies that enable that innovation to get to them. And second, they need to be able to use that innovation, understand that innovation and use that in the in their farming and the farming system to solve their problems, that pests, that disease, that weed pressures that they have. But second, we need to design as a corporation as we do, and others need to design um, solutions that are tailored for that, the needs of those farmers. Tropical agriculture is slightly different than agriculture in temperate countries. So that's why it's so important. That's why I'm so proud of companies like ours which understand that and design our R&D process and strategy in a way that really accounts to solve issues of farmers where they are on the climate conditions that they have and on the pressure that they have. And I think this is more relevant than ever, particularly if we think about low and middle income countries, uh, if we think about regions like Africa and Asia, 
Um, and as we discussed a little bit, things, basic things like developing a local seed system. So uh, you can design breeding innovations as well for that, the needs of those farmers. So I think more than ever, farmers centric approach is the only way we're going to solve the challenges of agriculture. And do you think there will be a replacement for nitrogen fertilizer, which depends on natural gas? Like how else will farmers be able to fertilize their crops? I think we can find alternative sources. Of course, I think countries um, that could ramp up that production. Um, and then second, there are innovative ways like John Bio. Uh, we can look at biological approaches. We can look at other ways to provide fertilizers and to provide that type of innovation to farmers. So now we've talked about the current crisis and we've discussed lessons that can be learned from the past, but this podcast always comes back to a discussion about the future, headlines of the future. So Natasha, I'd like to ask you as we start to close this discussion, if you look into the future eight years from now, is it realistic to achieve the UN Sustainable Development Goal of Zero Hunger by 2030? And if so, what's going to make that possible? Thank you, Kate. Um, of course, we, we must believe and do everything in our power to make it happen, right? We talk about innovation today, we talk about partnerships, and we talk about new ideas to solve the, the real problems on the ground, on the farms. Uh, so we shouldn't accept no for an answer, right? We should continue to challenge ourselves, um, others, and even our organizations. Um, we, we need to continue to create those meaningful partnerships and have in mind those positive system transformation um, be the change that we want to to see. I believe a lot on that. So maybe going back on, on policy, I, I think, for example, the meeting of the G7 leaders in June this year is one of the most important in modern history, particularly for the goals that, that we have, particularly for the SDGs. Um, so how governments this year decide to respond to that accumulation of risk that we discussed today, like climate, COVID, conflict, um, and the higher food and energy costs, um, this will shape um, what is the, the immediate and future of the most vulnerable and, and future well-being of, of all of us. But as we discussed, so action-oriented, governments should not act alone and they cannot act alone uh, for us to think about that more resilient, um, equitable and, and secured food future, uh, we need to have the public and private sector know-how, resources and, and commitment. So I think the headlights that I would like to see in, in the future regarding food security, um, and it's always a, a question that makes me think about my, mod, my mother, like I started this, this podcast earlier, um, and you remind them of the challenges time that we live in, 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 a, in terrible economic crisis. Um, and I cannot even think about what that would mean if it was exacerbated by war, right? So um, she fought so much. Um, so I think the headline that I would like to see, if I may, um, is the one that, you know, those conversations and, and partnerships and my mom herself inspired me to, to share. That is the all the daughters of our mothers or the granddaughters of our grandfathers have achieved the food system transformation that provides food that is both nutrition, environmental, sustainable and affordable for everyone, for every man and women, boys and girls everywhere. So I believe it. I think we can do it because we have organizations like ours, people like Julie, like us, um, that we will do everything we can to make it happen. Um, so, yes, I believe we can. So your headline would be something like women, 
close the book on food insecurity. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. (laughs) And Julie, what would your headline be? Well, first headline would be, there are no famines, no more famines. It's all man-made so that we can end that. We can end that right now. But one that I would like to see, and this is out there, is personalized seeds for farmers. And of course, that would go with gene editing or just regular um, traditional breeding, but that a farmer can know that he needs this type of technology, these type of traits for this part of his farm, whether it's one hectare or 3,000 hectares, and we can get exactly, almost a prescription, what that farmer's soil, how it goes to the climate, and every other need, nutrient need, and we can have that exact seed for them. So I'd love to see that happen. Thank you so much, Julia and Natasha. And thank you to our audience for listening to Headlines of the Future. We hope you found this dialogue interesting or enlightening and that this episode helps you better understand the current state of food security and the challenges the world is facing along with the possibilities for solving them. If you wanna learn more about science and innovation that could help address some of our biggest global challenges, you can visit bear.com, listen to our next episode and subscribe. If you want, share the podcast with others or leave us a rating and review. Thanks again for being with us, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.